basically want to just continue where we've kind of left off, I think, in respect to our worship this morning. Uh, as in preparation of saying all we're going to look at as, uh, in terms of scripture uh, and the series we're in in Ephesians is really, I think, an invitation to pause. I think that's a word that last year and the bit before uh, we kind of have been learning to get hold of as a community of what it means within the culture we live in, with so many different pressures and uh, expectations that we can live with, with so many uh, things that can fill our lives, that actually we're those that take moments to pause. And in us pausing it isn't inactive. Isn't that we literally just freeze in time and think, that's it, I've paused. And we become mannequins and people look worryingly at us. But rather that we pause with action. We've paused with a sense of activity of saying, actually, within this moment, as I stop, I want to do something within it. And I believe that what we're going to look at this morning um, in this next part of our series in Ephesians is actually an invitation to allow us to understand that we are crafted to pause for perspective. And I, I want us to look at something. We're going to look at these verses in Ephesians because what I think Paul wants us to get hold of is that actually in us pausing sometimes, it's so key. Because when we pause, what we get a moment to do is actually to gain a fresh perspective or a renewed perspective or a, fre- a kind of fresh sense of, of who Jesus is and who we are. And I think so often we can get clouded. I know I can get so clouded with so many different things and can lose sight of what the main thing is. And I feel like this morning that that's what God wants us to get hold of. That there's a perspective that he wants us to pause and take hold of this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn to Ephesians 1, I always find it funny to say that in Oasis because I think we live in a digital age and I know that everyone thinks, well, it's going to appear on the screen. So why do I need my Bible? Well, just to make sure what I put on the screens is actually in the Bible is always a good way to do it. Who knows what I'm putting on the screens? But anyway, um, we're going to pick up Ephesians 1 and we're going to look at this prayer that we've been looking at over the past few times of uh, verses 18 to 23. And we're actually going to zoom in then. Um, from verse 20 to 23 uh, for this morning, but let's read the whole thing. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Actually, I'll tell you what, let's do something slightly different. This came to, why don't we just close it? Rather, take my word for it, it is in the Bible. Okay, let's, you can read it after this bit. I just, this is a prayer. My concern sometimes is we read the Bible and we just think, oh yeah, let's read that. It's just like I was reading Harry Potter last night. Some of you thinking, oh, wouldn't have read Harry Potter on Halloween? Let's not get into that one. Um, there's, there's, but, but we're not just reading the Bible, are we, for the sake of it. We're wanting it to come alive in us. This is a prayer. Why don't we pray that over us? So why don't we just close our eyes, close our eyes so we don't get distracted by other things, other people. It's not some mystical moment. Just close our eyes. I'm going to keep my eyes open because I haven't memorized it. That's okay. So I'm going to pray for us. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet 
and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Okay, let's open our eyes. Some of you have fallen asleep. (laughs) Please wake up. If you see someone with their eyes closed still, just slap them, just so they know they've got to be back in the room. Darren Brown moment, back in the room. Um, In these verses, what we looked at last week is this invitation to understand that we're those that have been crafted by God's power, his Holy Spirit. If you weren't around last Sunday, please go and listen to that because it will do your very core of your being good. This week, though, that what I want us to get hold of, as I said, is this perspective that Paul wants to get us to get hold of, of who Jesus is and then who we are together as the church. The gathered community of God on earth who've centered their lives on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And in it, what we're going to discover by the end of this morning is actually in us understanding more and more of who Jesus is and who we are as the church that Paul is wanting to deeply bring comfort to our hearts, strength to our very beings, and also a deep sense of purpose in, through everything that we're about. And that's what I'm hoping for this morning. We're going to end the morning. Hey, youth, it's good to have you guys back. Um, we're going to end the morning by kind of celebrating communion, as we're going to see that this is the only fitting response we can have out of looking at everything we want to. But I want to start off, therefore, with how Paul starts off, is that he wants us to get hold of, firstly, a perspective in this moment that we pause of who Jesus is. I have the privilege of working at the cricket ground. I have the privilege of having an office that looks out over the stadium. And one of the things that struck me, particularly during the cricket season, is you can look out, and I have a panoramic view of the whole of the stadium, and I can look out over the stadium, and particularly in county games, you can look out and you think, man, is anyone here? You look around and you think, well, well, there seems to be more people in my room than out there. And you can look and it just seems to be this kind of scatter of individuals, usually guys, watching cricket for the five days. And, and you watch them and you think, this is nuts. There's, there's no one here. Is it even cost effective to do this? I look at the stadium and it, it just seems like there's probably like 30, 40 people in there. And the thing that surprises me is as I leave, I always like ask the guys who, are, who run the kind of ticket gates. I say, well, how many people are in today? Because the most surprising answer comes at that point. See, rather than there being 30 or 40, they always turn around and they say, oh, I was about 900 or 1,000. And the thing that hits me as I hear them say that is that the stadium is something of real scale. And suddenly we can think, like, 1,000, that's a lot of people. And yet in the scale of what the, sca- the stadium is, it suddenly looks like 30 or 40 people rattling around some stands. And if you like, Paul wants us to get hold of the fact that Jesus is someone of real scale. And if we're not careful, we can start to limit who Jesus is. And Jesus wants us to get this fresh perspective, renewed perspective of the wonder of who Jesus is in order that he would fill more and more of our gaze because as he does, it changes everything about who we are. As so Paul starts off, and he, he wants us to get this perspective that Jesus is one who's revealed through an empty cross. That's what it starts off with. It's an empty cross. Now, if we go to that side, the next slide on, it says this in verse 20, that Jesus was raised, raised Christ, that the Spirit raised Christ from the dead. Now, when he said, well, it's not an empty cross, well, that's the whole point. <laughs> 
That's what Paul is putting just these few words. That Jesus, who's been raised from the dead, is one there that we get to celebrate in who is no longer dead. He's no longer on a cross. He's also no longer in a tomb. He's risen and alive. The Paul wants us to grasp hold of, firstly, that Jesus is, is one who has risen and defeated death. That's who we're talking about, one who's defeated death. That we can be a company of people who have this weird sign that we can say, oh yeah, we have a cross, but it has no one on. People look, why have you got that? Oh, because it reminds us that there once was one who was on it, but he's no longer there. It's empty. There's no one there. Because when we look at it, what it does is it does our very core of our being good because it reminds us of what he said about being there. It reminds us that empty cross speaks of the fact that God loves us. Jesus said this to his friends. He said, look, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And then he says this most remarkable thing. He then says, and you're my friends? And then what did he do? He then went to the cross and died and then rose again in order that everyone could know this was a statement of declaration of love for anyone who puts their faith and trust in him. That Jesus is one who loves us. But it was also a declaration that the empty cross proclaims that this risen Jesus has accomplished something. Accomplished something that he utters in the first words he speaks to the friends that gather around him. Simply says in John that he comes into a locked room as risen Jesus, just appears before them. And in that moment, as he's got their attention, appeared before them, he just says this, peace be with you. See, in that moment, we didn't just put those words up out of his head thinking, oh, I know, how else get their attention? I said, say peace. No, it's in that moment that he reveals everything of what he's accomplished through his life, death and resurrection. It says that anyone who trusts in him is able to know peace. This peace with God, this peace within, this peace with every other person on the planet. So Paul says, oh, who's this Jesus? Oh, he's the Jesus of the empty cross. He's the Jesus who's risen from the dead. He's the Jesus who's proclaimed that he loves everyone. Who can live, they can then live, live, live with this new life he offers as the resurrected one, governed by his love. He's also the one of the empty cross who offers this life of peace, peace with God, peace with one another, peace within. That's who this Jesus is. But the challenge is that we can stay there. We can stay here in terms of the empty cross. But Paul doesn't want us to stay there because if we stay just in this place of living lives, understanding that Jesus offers us this new life of love and of peace, we're actually hindering who Jesus is. Will not allow him in to unbox himself before us. The cross, if we're not careful, becomes a box we're able to package Jesus in. And Paul won't allow that. You see, he then takes us and says, well, there is an empty cross, but then there's a throne. He writes this in verses 20 to 22. Jesus is being seated. This is what it's speaking about. So the Spirit seated him at the Father's, his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God has placed all things under his feet. Paul wants us to get hold of that this risen Jesus, this one who's emptied the cross, 
This risen Jesus who's no longer in a grave is also a risen Jesus who is somewhere. He's not floating around in the cosmos. He's one now who is seated. I don't know if you've ever been around someone who's seated when there seems to be so much going on. And usually when someone sits down, when there's lots going on, it means that they are in control. When there's loads going on and someone kind of gets up from their seat, starts stressing around and walking around quickly, you think, oh, they seem a bit on edge. And Paul wants us to understand, firstly, that Jesus is seated. He's seated, which means he's in control. He's seated also because he's one who's finished what he set out to do. On the cross when he hung there, he got to this point before he died and said, Father, it's finished. Before he's even resurrected, he saw, oh no, it's finished. What I came to do to reveal love, to offer life of peace, that's done. To the point when he's resurrected and can offer this new life, he's then able to sit and say, I'm in control, it's finished. But it's also about where he sits. You see, it isn't just that he sat somewhere in kind of mystical cloud cities. Actually, we're told he sat at the right hand of the Father. Now, the point there is that the right hand of the Father is saying that this is the place, position, of ultimate superiority, of ultimate power. That's where Jesus is. He sat on a throne that is revealed as the ultimate throne as the most superior throne, as the throne of all authority and power. And Jesus can't, Paul rather, about Jesus, can't help but contain himself because he can't help and just say, well, it isn't just Jesus is sat on this throne. You've got to understand what this throne is about. He says, oh, this throne? Oh, this is a throne that is above everything and everyone. That's who this Jesus is. Jesus is above everything. Everything, but he's also one who has everything under his feet. He says, Oh, this is who we're talking about. We're talking about one who is above everything, and yet everything is under his feet. It isn't just literally that moment of everything under his feet, isn't that everything is therefore inferior to him? It's rather that everything is subject to him. And he says, Oh, this one that everything's subject to? Oh, he's one that is above everything. Like literally everything and anything you can name. Authorities and rulers. People of power and influence. Nations of power and influence. Oh, Jesus, he's above those. Of principalities and powers. Oh, God isn't alone in being spiritual. There is a spiritual realm. As we look through Ephesians, our eyes are going to be open to this. We who can make everything feel so natural. Paul's going to open our eyes and say, actually, there's these other realms of things going on. But not to be scared of. Not to realize that there there aren't just other spiritual beings out there that are both working for the good and the harm of us. You don't need to fear that because actually you need to understand the starting point is realizing that Jesus is above all of it. Has authority, rule and reign over all of this. He says, this is both now and not yet. He says, in the present age, but also in the one to come. That Jesus, when he finished everything at the cross, then take this, took the seat on the throne at the right hand of the Father, then gets this position that is above all, where everything is placed in subject to him. And yet it's a reality that is true now, 
but it's a reality that's been working out or being worked out. A reality that one day will be fully realized by everything. Paul writing to Philippians says it. In this great song or prayer, however you want to put it, in Philippians 2, where he says, oh, there's going to come a, one, there's going to come a moment where suddenly Jesus, who is the name above all names, everyone will suddenly see, everyone will suddenly hear the name, and everything, everyone, every being will bow the knee before him. That will happen one day. But there's this day now we're living where he has the power and the authority. It isn't like it's to come. It's there now, but it's being worked out. That one day he will be fully revealed. And his rule and reign will be felt everywhere. That Jesus is supreme. Paul wants us to understand that Jesus isn't just someone who's emptied the power of death. Isn't simply someone who has caused us to know lives of love and peace. Jesus is one who towers over all and has all authority and all power. That's who Jesus is. And sometimes we just need to allow him to breathe. In the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, there's this moment where Lucy hears about Aslan for the first time. Aslan's this depiction of who God is. And she asks Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, the best characters ever, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, she says to him, but, but is Aslan safe? And Mr. Beaver turns to her and says, safe? Oh, no, he's not safe, but he is good. See, Jesus, in one sense, isn't safe because he is all powerful. Demons, we're told, crumble at the knees at the utterance of his voice. One day, the whole of the universe will fall to its knees and bow before him because of who he is. But the reality we get to live with is not that he's one to therefore be feared, but rather one who's be seen, not that be boxed and safe, but rather to see, oh yeah, but he is good. And Paul wants us to get hold of this, which brings us to the third thing. And I couldn't find one of these. And so the third point's this, head. <laughs> you see, Paul takes us from an empty cross, a throne, and then he gets to a head. In verse 22, he says this, God has appointed Jesus, him, to be head over everything for the church. Man, I don't know about you, I'm going to read it again, because let's just take that again. Remember, he's not safe, but he is good. He who is above all, like literally anything we can name in this day and age, anything we could imagine in the one to come, anything we can name, oh, he's above that. He has authority, rule and reign over that. And then we hear this, that God has appointed Jesus, him, to be head, to be ruler, to be the final authority, to be the one that everything else is subject to, over everything, for the church. See, rather than one who's on the throne to be one that's feared, it's actually one who's to bring us this immense amount of comfort. Because he who is head, he who towers over everything, is there for our good. 
the church, the gathered people of God. That's who it is. The church that's not only us here in this moment, gathered in this room, but is there throughout the whole of the nations in this moment, throughout the whole of time, throughout those that are now with Jesus, those who will be with Jesus, who are his. And everything of his rule and reign is being realized for our good. Man, that, that's, that kind of blows my mind. It may not surprise you that when I was 11 years old, I wasn't quite the buff physique that you see before you. I know it's going to rock your world, that, that actually I was a relatively puny individual. I know that's hard to imagine. Someone like me, as solid as I am, up here, obviously, not, I don't know, I'm relatively solid down there. There's um, <laughs> the being kind of slightly weedy. But that's how I was in school. Now, what I did to survive school, because sometimes school has to be survived, and the kind of schools I went to, you needed to survive because they were relatively unique school environments. And so how I survived is I had a friend. He's a good guy, and I, I liked being friends with him. But there was another reason why I was friends with him. I was friends with Leon Golding. Leon Golding was the toughest kid in my year. Not only the toughest kid of my year, even when we were in the first year, he was actually a rival to every other year group up. Leon was tough. Leon, to be honest, didn't ever have to have a fight. Everyone just knew you didn't mess with Leon. And the amazing thing is, puny Adrian was really good friends with Leon. And I'll tell you what it did when I lived in school, is it caused me to live with a sense of celebration of who Leon was. <laughs> I can promise you that. And I made often the moments that when we were sat together in class, they oh, Leon, how are you doing today? <laughs> friends. <laughs> Round the playground playing football with a tennis ball, weren't allowed proper footballs, football with a tennis ball. Leon, pass to me, my friend. <laughs> there were those moments, so I'd celebrate in Leon. I also took great comfort in Leon. I took great comfort in Leon when I was by myself and this group of third years came up to me and started pushing me around. And I said, oh, do you know my friend, Leon? <laughs> and they walked off. <laughs> you see, for me, I learned with Leon, there's great comfort and great celebration to be had when you know the one that's with you. The deal is, I grew older, and I realized I didn't need to just live under Leon's protection. I outgrew Leon, because I learned to run, <laughs> and run very, very fast. But along with that, why am I telling this story? Because ultimately, Leon is this tiny example of who we have in Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who's the God of your making? Is it Jesus? Because if it's Jesus, surely he causes us to take comfort. Surely he causes us to take a moment to celebrate in who he is because he's working for our good. His rule and reign is for our benefit. See, Paul wants us to understand that our perspective isn't only to be changed in respect to who Jesus is. It's also meant to be changed in respect to who we are. So who we are, if we move to the next slide, it says this. Verse 23. Who we? Well, 
We're his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's who we are together. Paul wants us to get hold of this fact, and he's going to keep building it as we keep looking through Ephesians. This Jesus who is supreme, this Jesus who towers over everything and everyone, has a body on earth, and his body is us. See, Paul wants us to understand that with this perspective, we get to see that who we are as church is privilege. It's a total privilege. It isn't kind of insignificant. It isn't, oh yeah, we're, we're kind of gathering in a room and we'll kind of make sense. And sometimes there's a, quite, it feels like there's a few of us, but sometimes there's not many of us. And oh, who are we compared to the whole of the world? Paul says in this moment, remember, he's talking to groups of people that are just starting to emerge. Often just meeting in people's lounges. Some of them in big gatherings, but many, many in small gatherings. Like, oh, in that moment when you're in this age, that's the Roman Empire. Ruling over everything, dominant over everyone, you're to have a different perspective. Because you're not insignificant in society. You're the body of one who does and will rule and reign over everything. That's who you are, that's the privilege. That you uniquely together, now in this moment, 21st century, we as Oasis are an expression of his body. That's the privilege of who we are. We get to be known as those that are totally dependent on him. This, the Oasis isn't built around a key person. I can promise you it's not built around me. It's built around him, Jesus. Why? Because it's always been his body. We are totally dependent on him. As we often say, we don't really take ourselves that seriously. But we take him very, very seriously. Why? Because he's the ruler and reigner over everything. And if we're totally dependent on him, when we try and do it on our own strength, it just goes to pot. So we're totally dependent on him. As his body, we also have this privilege of not only being totally dependent on him, we have the privilege of total fellowship with him. The whole image of body is one of intimacy. It isn't that who I am is kind of different to the body that's with me. It's intimately involved. The reason you know I'm here is because there's a body here with you. As the church, we enjoy the privilege of a unique relationship with Jesus that only the church in the whole of the universe enjoys. That's a privilege, isn't it? Get this painting, Revelation 21, 22, of what God says it will look like one day when he gathers all of his people together and says, oh, this is all for you. My rule and reign exercised throughout the whole of the universe is for your good only. This is what I created it for, for you. My people. Oh, I thought the church was just this building. I thought the church was an inconvenience. I thought the church was something that is significance. Oh, no. The whole of Jesus' rule and reign is being exercised for the good of it. God, that's a privilege, isn't it? But it's not only that, it's about provision. There's this bit in this verse which is, blows everyone's minds. It says this, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. When you hit this verse, if you read the commentaries, every commentary says this. This verse, or these bits of words, are the hardest to interpret in the whole of Scripture. Because... You read it and you say, well, what's it? The fullness of him. Who, what, what's the fullness then? And that word fullness literally can either mean the container being filled 
or the substance filling the container. The container being filled or the substance filling the container. That's what it's talking about. Therefore, that is quite key to understand because it's, it's therefore saying that actually Jesus is only complete with us. That Jesus is the container and we're the contents and we're therefore filling Jesus. If it's that, then what does that mean about the one who sat on the throne who is above all and beyond all? As you can see, I don't kind of think this one's true. I don't think it's that. Rather, surely it's this. The fullness is about us being the container and him being the contents that fills us. Now, when you read it like this, then the verse starts to explode. Because it suddenly means this, that he who is above all, he whose name is beyond every name, he who has power and dominion over everything, he who one day will be revealed to rule and reign and will fill the whole of the universe, oh, he's the one who in this moment in time is wanting to fill us with that power and that authority as the church. God, that blows my mind. That Jesus' provision to us as his body is that he wants us to fill, us to be filled with the fullness of who he is. And we haven't got time this morning to look at this. I just want to drop it as a penny in your mind to be contemplating this week. Do we live in the reality that when we gather together, when we're spread out into the unique places we go, that actually we're those that are now being invited by Jesus to live in the full reality of his rule and reign. Because that's what he's wanting to fill us with. So it's never that he wants us to get his point thing. Oh yeah, I've got it now. I think I've got the fullness of God with me. No, no, the point is that we'll never get it until we fully see him. And therefore this life becomes a life of adventure where we get to live more and more knowing what it is to be filled with more and more of his rule and reign and goodness. That we don't do this alone. We have one who is above all, that all is subject to, who wants us to fill us with everything he has. He provides for us. And lastly, it reminds us that we have a purpose. He who will fill everything in every way, one day, whole of the cosmos will be filled with him. Some people say, oh no, no, it can't be that. I think think you're getting a bit carried away. Oh no, read to the end of the book. If we've got a Jesus who only has authority over earth, that's all right, isn't it? That's quite amazing, just earth. I know what God does is he blows our mind and says, oh, this ever-extending universe. Oh, Jesus is going to rule and reign over all of it and cause all of it to be as it's meant to be. That's the Jesus who is. That's the moment where some people look and say, that sounds foolishness. Do you not understand science research? Do you understand NASA? What you're saying is just crazy talk. But for us who start to see who Jesus is, it becomes the greatest comfort ever. It also becomes the moment of us understanding what our purpose here is. That he who will fill everything wants to reveal what that filling looks like now through fragile people like us, the church. So that people can step in and say, what does the rule and reign of Jesus look like? It looks like this. What a privilege that we together get to reveal the rule and reign of Jesus. In all our frailty, in all our weakness, in us hurting one another, in us forgiving one another, in us believing the best of one another. 
in us being for one another, in us saying, you can do this. All those moments are these moments of saying, this is the rule and reign of Jesus being worked out. So that others can come and say, oh, that's what it looks like. What a privilege. I thought it's just me sitting on a seat, singing some songs occasionally. That's not that. It's that others come around us and say, oh, this is what the reign and rule of Jesus looks like. That kind of takes on a whole different realm, doesn't it, of what we are together. Every single one of us matter. Every single one of us has this privilege, the provision to do this, the purpose of what we're living out. But it's not only that we contain it here. Because Jesus' desire is to fill everything everywhere with his rule and reign. And how he's going to do that is through you and through me. Because the amazing thing is, we don't just live in this room. We gather here in these moments to remind us that we're not alone, that we are something unique together. But then when we move out from this place, we realize that we take the same calling with us. That wherever you have been uniquely placed, wherever I am, we get to reveal this rule and reign of Jesus in and through everything. Which brings us, lastly, to a loaf of bread. 1 Corinthians 10 says this, verses 16, 17. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Renew perspective, communion. The simplest of meals. Some would say, well, it's not even a meal, is it? It's just some, a drink and some bread. I know, but when you fully get perspective of what it is, it becomes the most filling, nourishing meal that you could ever, ever enjoy. Because what Paul is highlighting here in Corinthians, he's saying actually that when we take the bread, when we take the juice, what we're doing in that moment is we're gaining a pause moment of perspective of who Jesus is. Jesus, who is no longer on a cross, who is risen. Jesus, who is risen, who is sat on a throne, who has power over everything. That's what we do when we take communion. We break it and remember, this is who Jesus is, the risen and exalted one. But also when we take it, we remember who we are. We remember who Jesus is, but we remember who we are. Because just as there is one loaf, there is one body, which is us. And therefore, we get to take this together. And in doing so, remember who he is and remember who we are, that we are unique. We have this privileged position that we are Jesus' body on earth, deep fellowship with him. We are those that are provided by him, by him wanting to fully reveal his rule and reign in and through us. This causes us to live with this immense privileged purpose that we get to reveal it when we gather together and wherever we go. That is communion which to me seems like the best meal ever and so i wonder if i could encourage you if we're followers of jesus and we think do you know what i know what it is to be part of this loaf in other words the body of jesus it's not literally this loaf um why don't we go this stations around grab a cup grab some bread um hopefully there is bread otherwise it will all fall down um and then come back to your seat and then i really want us to finish off with by just taking a moment to celebrate in communion together and to take comfort through this meal. Is that right? So just move, grab some, come back to your seats as quickly as possible would be great. Yeah.
So sorry, yeah, bring it back and we're going to take it together. I think we're about there. Let's take the juice together. And as we do, what we're doing is we're saying, Jesus, I remember the life you now offer me as the risen one. A life of love and a life characterized by peace. I also in this remember that you now are seated above all, beyond all, for my good. Let's drink. Let me take the bread. What I want us to do is we're going to do a weird thing. And what are you thinking? I thought it was weird enough already. Now, this is something we don't always love doing. And it can feel a bit cheesy, but it isn't that. Before we take this bread, in a moment, what I want us to do is just look around. I want us to look around and remember that this is the body we're now part of. And this body that we're part of here reveals something that goes beyond all ages. Of people who centered their life around Jesus. And as we take this bread, what we're going to remember is that we are now part of this. We're not alone. For some of you need to hear that. You're not alone. You now belong. But also, we're not only taking it saying, no, we're not alone, we belong. It's also knowing that actually we uniquely together get to build something, get to be part of something, which is the body of Christ, to live in the unique privilege of that. 
to get to reveal it. And as we look around, is that commitment? Some of us are going to think, man, I need to get something right with them. Then do it immediately afterwards. The Bible says that. Don't make a big thing of it. Just say, I'm sorry. I spend most of my life, to be honest, saying sorry to people. It's something that I learned to try and do quickly. And I promise you, if I've ever offended you, if you ever, and I've not realized it, you just come talk to me, I'll immediately say sorry. It's the best thing that can happen. Sorry, then the other person forgives, and then it's done. But some of us, it'll be that moment saying, actually, I just need to deal with that. For many of us, it's just going to be that sense of, what a privilege. We're not any old bunch of people sat in a room on a Sunday morning with a body of Christ. Let's look around and eat bread. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Can I pray for us? Just close our eyes where we are. Jesus, I thank you that who we are together is such a privilege that we're your body on earth. I thank you for that privilege. And I pray would you cause us to live with different perspectives. God, we're not some insignificant bunch of people in this city, this nation, and the world. Jesus, we're those that you want to use to fill this world with your rule and reign. And I pray, God, that we would get hold of that, whether we're the youngest in this room or the oldest. I pray we would understand that actually it's about who we are together, which is all about who you are, Jesus. And so I pray also, Jesus, would you cause us to not box you? I pray we'd keep allowing you to be the one that as Lucy and Narnia discovered, you're not safe, but boy, are you good. I really ask that for your glory, Jesus. Amen.